Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com system. This is C-SPAN's Lectures in History podcast. This week, University of California Riverside professor Catherine Algor looks at how women exercised a small but increasing amount of political and economic freedom during and after the American Revolution. Hello, welcome to week four. It's great. And welcome to today's lecture. It's Liberty's Daughters, Republican Mothers, and Beyond. So we'll talk about uh, Liberty's Daughters, Republican Mothers, and then we'll see what Beyond is. Let's start in the spring of 1776, when John Adams was in Philadelphia with the Second Continental Congress, debating whether or not the colonies were going to declare an independency. And his wife, Abigail Adams, wrote him what would become the most famous letter written by a woman in American history. So in the letter, she asks how the war is going, and she dryly comments on um, southern slaveholders. She wonders if they can be loyal to the patriot cause. She says, I have sometimes been ready to think that the passion for liberty cannot be equally strong in the breasts of those who have been accustomed to deprive their fellow creatures. And that's why we like Abigail. She's so smart and, and very witty. But it's a few paragraphs later that she pens the words that will go down through the century. She says, I long to hear that you have declared an independency. And by the way, in the new code of laws, which I suppose it will be necessary for you to make, I desire you remember the ladies and be more generous and favorable to them than your ancestors. Do not put such unlimited power into the hands of the husbands. Remember, all men would be tyrants if they could. If particular care and attention is not paid to the ladies, we are determined to foment a rebellion and will not hold ourselves bound by any laws in which we have no voice or representation. That your sex is naturally tyrannical is a truth so thoroughly established as to admit of no dispute, but such of you as wish to be happy willingly give up the harsh title of master for the more tender and endearing one of friend. Why then not put it out of the power of the vicious and the lawless to use us with cruelty and indignity with impunity? Men of sense in all ages abhor those customs which treat us only as the vassals of your sex. Abigail's plea for John to remember the ladies is one of the most widely quoted lines of the era and has supplied the title of more articles and books than I can care to remember. Many Americans assume what Abigail was asking for was, you know, kind of equal rights for women or maybe the vote. But what she was requesting that John and the gentlemen of the Continental Congress consider was in some ways more radical than mere voting. She was asking that they do something about coverture. Now, we talked about coverture a few weeks ago when we were talking about the colonial era, but I'm going to talk about it again because I told you it's one of the most important ideas in this course, and if I could put it on the midterm and the final, I would. So you remember that we talked about coverture and the femme covert, the covered wife or the covered woman. At the time of the American Revolution, American women, along with their English counterparts, were legally bound under the institution of coverture. Coverture, as you may remember held that no female person had a legal identity. At birth, a female baby was covered by her father's identity, and then when she was married, by her husband's. And the easiest way to think about that is the husband and wife became one 
not in any romantic way, the one was the husband. As a symbol of the subsuming of her identity, women took the last names of their husbands. That's why women still do that now. And they become femme couvert, covered women. Because they did not legally exist, married women could not make contracts or be sued, so they could not own or work in businesses. Married women owned nothing, not even the clothes on their backs. They had no rights to their children, so that meant if they divorced or left their husband or their husband left them, they might never see their children again. Married women had no rights to their bodies. That meant not only would a husband have a claim to any wages generated by his wife's labor, he could send her out to work and collect the money, but also to the fruits of her body, that's the children, and because in marriage consent was implied, any sexual activity, including rape, was legitimate. So a woman could not consent She could not withhold consent, if she's a married woman, to sex. His total mastery of this fellow human being stopped short, but just short, of death. Of course, a man wasn't allowed to beat his wife to death, but he could beat her. Now, the law in practice doesn't reflect real life, and real life ensured the coverture in real life on the ground, as it were, um, was not as restrictive as the black letter law would indicate. Though a woman could own nothing, a man who wanted to pass on his wealth through his daughter to, say, grandchildren, devised ways to keep money and property out of the hands of sons-in-laws. And also, everyday life and the demands of commerce played their parts in mitigating coverture. So even though a woman couldn't make a contract, plenty of women did business and trade, either on their own in a legal exception called femme sole, or for absent husbands. Wives often ran businesses alongside their mate with the local community acting as monitors and enforcers. So uh, at some point in women's history, we became really interested in how many of these women were femme sole, right? So say your husband's away on a shipping voyage and you need to do some business. Suppose you're supposed to go and apply for this exception where you can act in his stead. And what we found, though, when we looked for these femme sole applications, if you will, was that there were very few of them. So we erroneously came to the conclusion that there weren't a lot of women acting, you know, in this capacity. But of course, it turns out lots and lots of women ran businesses, accepted deliveries, made contracts, paid people. They just didn't go to the bother of, you know, having this legal document. Because, of course, they lived in very small towns. So if they decided they were going to cheat somebody, they were going to be out of business. Um, So that was kind of an interesting way where the sources had to be kind of interpreted. Uh, And also, we have to assume that even though the husbands did have uh, rights to marital relations at will, that when it came to sex, there was also a great deal of negotiation. But still, coveture was what Abigail Adams was talking about in her famous Remember the Ladies letter to John. She referenced the long-standing nature of coveture when she bade him to, quote, be more generous and favorable to them, the present-day ladies, than your ancestors. Abigail understood the corruption of absolute power as clearly as any revolutionary theorist when she said do not put such unlimited power in the hands of the husbands remember all men would be tyrants if they could Abigail knew she was lucky though that in general men were naturally tyrannical by which she also meant physically aggressive her husband was one who would quote willingly give up the harsh title of master for the more tender and endearing one of friend So she had a good husband. But that wasn't the point. In the same way that the occasional benevolent master did not ameliorate the institution of slavery, the, you know, kindness of a particular husband didn't mean that women, like male citizens, did not need to be protected under law. Interestingly, Abigail even obliquely refers to the shame of marital rape and physical abuse when she proposed... Why then not put it out of the power of the vicious and the lawless to use us with cruelty and indignity with impunity? Men of sense in all ages abhor the customs, customs, coverture, which treat us only as the vassals of your sex. And in the spring of 1776, when Abigail's writing this letter, it seemed it was, might be possible to get rid of coverture. It was, after all, a time to build the world anew, and the men of the Continental Congress were very, um, very conscious of that. So it might seem to Abigail Adams and to other white women of the middling and elite classes that this was their moment, too. 
where they, like their husbands and fathers, could throw off the shackles of old ideas of hierarchy and oppression. And then when the colonies did declare an independency a few months later and the revolution escalated, it must have seemed to them even more likely. The American Revolution was a transformative time for everyone involved, including enslaved Americans, Native Americans, and, of course, colonial women. Like their menfolk, some women were patriots and some were loyalists, but they all were affected by the war. And in their experience, we see familiar patterns around war, so there's this sort of initial freeing up for women to take on the responsibilities of war, and then there's a kind of backlash at the end of the war, kind of uh, return to traditional gender norms as a way of um, reinforcing a threatened world. But what makes this war a little bit different is this is um, a revolution, and the revolutionary rhetoric was part of it. So these weren't just women in wartime. There was a revolution going on. And perhaps the group who who was the most radicalized by the revolutionary rhetoric, who had the farthest to travel from to get somewhere, were these white women of the upper and midland classes. In the 1980s, two historians of women's lives focused on this group of founding mothers. And I put their names up here. Mary Beth Norton, who wrote Liberty's Daughters, and Linda Kerber, who wrote The Women of the Republic. In Liberty's Daughters, Mary Beth Norton traced the evolution of this set of women, tracking how their wartime experiences changed them. And there are lots of fascinating stories and themes in this book, um, but one of the most interesting changes that Norton charts has to do with what we would call self-esteem. In the letters before the war, women spoke of themselves in deeply deprecating ways. They saw themselves as, you know, just women, and therefore less capable and less intelligent than men. For them, women were softer, more capricious than men, illogical, with a host of sex-related vices including curiosity, talkativeness, love of gossip, and vanity. They would regularly apologize to male correspondents for their letters, for the spelling, the grammar, the subject matter, attributing their writing weaknesses not to their being uneducated, but to their being female. It was not their place to comment about men's business. And politics, of course, was the quintessential man's business. Not only was it unfeminine for women to meddle in the affairs of states, but their very femaleness ensured they could not understand or speak rationally about such matters. Or That's at least how the theory went. And there was nothing they could do about that. They were women. One word appeared over and over again in women's um, discussions of themselves, and, uh, selves, and that word was helpless. So they would describe themselves as helpless, which, of course, means passive, right, if you're helpless. No man, as far as we know, ever applied that word to himself or other men. But this would change with the experience of war. Even before the hostilities began, women were part of the protests against British policies, a fact that did not go unnoticed by their culture or the press. Before war was declared, women took part in the public demonstrations against British policy. So they're protesting in mobs, they're uh, participating in fast days, celebrations of parliamentary repeal, etc. So they were just part of the crowd. But then they were explicitly called upon as women to participate in the non-importation agreement of 1774. And that was the agreement that called on the colonists to refuse to buy or use goods imported from Great Britain. Male leaders, quite rightly, saw women as prime consumers of tea and other luxuries, and they knew they'd have to have women's support to make the boycott work. Newspapers appealed directly to them. And this was an era when women's names, and let alone their activities, never appeared in the press. But now, important men were declaring, in print... Yes, ladies, you have it in your power, more than all your committees and congresses, to strike the stroke and make the hills and plains of America clap their hands. If they stopped drinking tea, they could convince the British that, quote, American patriotism extends even to the fair sex and discourage any future attempts to enslave us. For women to be told, even, let's, in hyperbole, that their activities could be more important to America than the efforts of male committees in Congress represented an extraordinary departure from these past assumptions of women as too irrational or too unintelligent to know anything about politics. And, of course, you know, the women felt that, too. 
Now, asking women to say not buy tea or feathers or something, male leaders were not asking them to do anything unwomanly, right? So purchasing and consuming items, were, it's part of their housewifely role. So they weren't asking them to do anything radical, but they put a radical meaning to their everyday activities. The same thing happened when they went to the sort of the next step, which was an even more active step. Colonial leaders asked women to begin spinning, homespun, as a substitute for English cloth. Now, as we know from earlier class, no task was more womanly than spinning. But this was still a more active way to resist than just not buying. And though traditionally a female task, once the context for spinning changed, so did women's understanding of the meaning of traditional tasks. The public attention and approbation of the women in power led to a reevaluation of the domestic realm. Spinning bees, not usually the stuff of newspaper stories, were now front-page news. As the story about a spinning contest loftily declared, the ladies, while they vie with each other in skill and industry in their profitable employment, may vie with the men in in contribution to the preservation and prosperity of their country and equally share in the honor of it. You could get the honor of your country just by doing what you were doing anyway, which was spinning. And women saw themselves as patriots. In spinning, 11-year-old Anna Winslow felt herself, quote, a daughter of liberty. And a Connecticut farm girl, Betsy Foote, declared after spinning 10 knots of wool that she, quote, felt nationly. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. These activities brought women together and with the topic of patriotism in their two hands, so to speak, Often as soon as the rhythm of the work had gone into full swing, the conversation started and, quote, we commenced perfect statesmen. This open discussion among women soon extended to families and with husbands and in letters with no apologies for spelling or subject matter or writing. The atmosphere was too urgent. The Americans were going to create a new world and women wanted to be part of it. Revolutionary times demanded that women step out of their ordinary lives and make extraordinary sacrifices, take extraordinary steps. Once the war started, they took over the duties of the men in homes and also in running plantations, farms, and businesses. They also supplied the army with food, clothing, and the labor of washing and food preparation, making possible the institution of a professional army rather than just a militia. So a militia goes home every night, but you need an army out there, who's going to do all the stuff? And it was women. And of course, in times of disaster, women faced invasion, rape, and death, being turned or burned out of their homes and having their property seized. The battles of the revolution were fought over and over the same landscapes, and often women and families left at home found themselves being overrun, first by one army and then another. Some of these women found the new responsibility part of this a liberating experience. When Mary Bartlett, the wife of a New Hampshire congressman, Josiah Bartlett, yes, for all you West Wing fans, that's the Josiah Bartlett Martin Sheen's named after, she first took over her husband's duty in 1776, and she would write to him and report on your farming business. She was very unsure about her ability to manage his affairs, but she did great. And two years later, she began to take real pride in her work. Her letters to Josiah then became, it had become our farming business. Other women, however, did not find the added responsibilities as an opportunity for self-enrichment. They just complained. And I have to admit, I kind of like the complainers. 
And not just because I think I probably would be one. Because when they complain, they're just so colorful. As Mary Foster sighed to her husband Isaac away at war, every trouble, however trifling, I feel with double weight in your absence. For Sally Logan Fisher, with her Quaker husband arrested and sent into exile, life was a, quote, fiery trial. And it made her feel forlorn and desolate, and the world appears like a dreary desert, almost without any visible protecting hand to guide us from the ravenous wolves and lions that prowl about for prey. You know, she's in, not, she's in Connecticut. She's not in the jungle. So I like the complaining. Um, after the war, though, scholar Mary Beth Norton noted two trends in the letters of women, both complainers and compliers. First, the tone had changed. The female correspondents were much less self-deprecatory. They stopped apologizing for being just a woman. They stopped, too, using the word helpless as often. Second, the women owned their wartime experiences, whether they had complied or complained, whether they supported the war or not, when it was over, women realized that they had been through war as surely as if they had been on the battlefield, and some of them had. They had survived it, and they were not going to let anyone take that accomplishment away from them. As a result of their baptisms by fire, the wives, mothers, and daughters of the revolutionary generation might well have assumed that things would change after the war. Professional writers like Mercy Otis Warren Judith Sargent Murray, as well as ordinary women, wrote and debated about the role that women were going to play in the future. But, aside from loosening a few divorce laws, the revolution did not change women's legal status at all. Although, new rights for men meant some new rights for women. Just by extension, thanks to the Bill of Rights, women partook in many of the rights men enjoyed. Law protected the property of widows and single women. With their husband's permission, married women could assemble freely, practice their religion, and exercise free speech. They also had the right to petition and trial by jury, though the jury of their peers would be made up of men. Enslaved people enjoyed none of these secondhand rights. Wives also had uh, legal rights in extremis, meaning in emergencies, so If things got really bad, a wife could divorce her husband or swear out a warrant against him if he committed a crime against her. Slaves couldn't do that. They couldn't obviously divorce their masters. And the law provided no refuge against excessive physical force against enslaved people. But with coverture unchanged, the chief legal distinction between a slave and a married woman was that a husband could not sell his wife, nor could he prostitute her out. But even these distinctions were shaky. Some of the first persons sold in North America were white women from England auctioned off to male Virginia colonists as wives. The the comparison between the legal status of enslaved people and white wives is less a face-to-face contrast and more a side-by-side assessment. The status of both groups overlapped. So um, you could think of it this way. There's no legal treatment for enslaved people that at some times or places did not also apply to wives. And another way to think about it is... um, By the 19th century, 18th, early 19th century, the United States had one of the most coercive systems of slavery in the world. And you might argue, you could argue, that colonial and early national marriage was not quite as bad as this. But if you compared it to other kinds of slavery in the world, it was on a par with that slavery. So just seeing these two statuses and understanding that they're both part of a a sort of a larger hierarchies of power. And certainly it seems in an era... that spoke of issues of autonomy and how a group of men, Parliament, had no right to virtually represent another group of men, American colonists, it seemed shocking that there was no change, however partial, in the legal status of women. And I also have to um, tangent for a second here because, you know, I'm always trying to get you to think about what we do as historians and the sources. And when I was writing my first book, which was about Washington women, I went to the American Antiquarian Society, which you should go if you ever get a chance. It's in Worcester, Mass., big gorgeous building and it's maybe the largest repository of paper newspapers journals all kinds of diaries personal papers of the past in america so it's great and um i went to read newspapers now nowadays if you want to read newspapers you get on a database you type in your search terms and you can actually see images of the article you want 
And uh, that's great, believe me. But in the old days, what you had to do was go down the basement of the American Antiquarian Society and you would see the actual newspapers. And they were on sticks, big long sticks. And you had to carefully turn them over. So you obviously did not get as much work done because you were looking for something. What I was looking for was mentions of Washington City, mentions of women. And, you know, I'm just basically skimming the newspaper. And when you're doing something like that, you're always sort of like, you want to stay alert to what's there, right? You don't want to kind of get off on a tangent and start reading about stuff. But you, you, it's always this constant struggle. So I was trying to focus on my topic. But it was interesting. Something kept catching my eye. Now, newspapers aren't very long at this point. They have shipping news and foreign news and some local news. But they often will have a little column with little humorous bits, right? Little jokes, little puns, whatever. And humor is such an interesting way of looking at a culture. You know, they have little tropes. Like when I was growing up, there was like the mother-in-law joke and how women were bad drivers. You know, that kind of, there's jokes that occur over and over again. So one of the little stories that I would see over a span of 20 years of papers was this sort of ha-ha joke of some guy, some mountain guy, some hick, coming down off the mountain into the town, bringing his wife with him, and he has a for sale sign around her. And the joke is, what, you know, what a uh, dummy, you know. Here's this, what a hick he is to think you, you can't sell your wife. You can't, you can't march her around like she's a mule with a for sale sign. What a, you know, maroon. That was the joke. But I remember looking at that at the time, and I, you know, and again, I was supposed to be looking at something else, but I thought, I started just looking out for that kind of like repetitive joke. And my first thought is, I don't know, why would he not think he couldn't sell his wife? That doesn't seem like such a stretch. Knowing what he could do to his wife, he could hire her out, uh, take her wages. I mean, w- selling her just seemed just like a little step to the right. So I thought to myself, that's actually not, first, not funny, but it's also like, why were they so focused on that story? And I come to think about it, and so I put that in the back of my head, and you know, I wrote a couple books and whatever, and came back to this idea, and I think to myself that it has something to do with knowing on some level, some uneasy level, that the status of these women was awfully close. But to make something of that step, right? But I was like, but oh, <laughs> we can't sell them, you know? I think it has something to do with a kind of uneasiness about that, but that's just my theory. All right, end of tangent. Um, Linda Kerber, second person here, Women of the Republic, she actually looked at the same group of women who wrote before, during, and after the war, and in the face of legal change, that was really her concentration, she just tried to discern if women got anything remotely revolutionary out of the American Revolution. And it was only when she enlarged her perspective to include not just the words of women themselves, but the wide-ranging print conversation after the war, that she found a shift. If not for real women, a change in the thinking about women. And she named this late 18th and early 19th century rhetorical shift, she called it Republican motherhood. Mm, That smells like an IED, doesn't it? Yes. This print... And public rhetoric was a way of acknowledging the immense contribution uh, that white female citizens had made to the successful rebellion without actually giving women more control over their lives. This new formulation that she's calling Republican motherhood did not propose that women be allowed to embark on any new activity. They were supposed to continue on being wives and mothers and raising households. But now, in the new republic, their work had a political importance. So we saw that pattern with the spinning. It's now going to be after the war. So here it is. Their job was to raise virtuous citizens, especially male citizens, which were necessary for the republic. After all, the new nation had no centralizing power, and the survival of the republic depended on a virtuous citizenry. In a culture of new laws, without uh, precedence or history, women were in charge of what they called manners, meaning those behaviors and practices that seemed more eternal and stable than the new political innovations being constructed on the spot. And then there were other formulations which you read about for this week. Republican wives, for instance, were to use their power during courtship and their sexuality to keep the new American citizens on the political straight and narrow. These ideas about women had their roots less in the theories of John Locke and Thomas Paine that had informed the rebellion itself and more in the ideas of the Scottish Enlightenment, an intellectual school of thought developed by David Hume, Adam Smith, and others. In place of political equality... 
Liberty's, Liberty's daughters were being given social equality. Mm. If that seems like a consolation prize, it was. <laughs> Though it failed utterly to address women's legal status, the historical construct we call Republican motherhood did have some good effects. So it reconciled politics and domesticity, so you could be a domestic and political person. It justified women's continuing political education and awareness, if not their actual involvement. Another good side effect of this post-revolutionary discourse was a rise in the educational opportunities for girls. Men, such as physician and reformer Benjamin Rush, stressed the need for these new, potential Republican mothers to be educated. Not as men were to be taught, and certainly not to fulfill their own intellectual potential, but for women to be fit companions for men and as their children's first teachers. But, as you can imagine, Republican motherhood also had limitations. It didn't bring women together, as other political later movements would do, nor did it offer an outlet for a woman who really wanted to affect a political decision. Still, the genie was out of the bottle, as they say, and the framers of this discourse for women could not control how women, individually and in groups, internalized these strictures. And what we're going to see in the weeks to come is that women are going to take that rhetoric that makes them responsible for a moral society as a ticket out of the domestic circle and onto public streets. Now, in the 1980s, when Linda Kerber is writing all about this, and she's writing about uh, the failure of the revolution to recognize the bondage of women, she and other scholars were very careful to not to be seen to take the founding fathers to task. Scholars, especially feminist ones, are very sensitive to the accusation of looking back and holding people to today's standards. And you may remember that's sort of how we used to say that about slavery, the whole the founders didn't know any better kind of thing. And that's sort of what Linda Kerber said in the 1980s. She said, in short, the founders didn't know better. She called it a silence, a vacuum when it came to the subject, one that historians took literally, concluding that there was silence around women's citizenship because there was nothing to say. As she sought then, and this is a quote from Kerber, the limited definition of female citizenship, the Republican motherhood, was all that the revolutionary discourse would permit, and that it is generally thought to be both unfair and ahistorical to expect of the revolutionary generation that it initiate a radically new conception of female citizenship. And at first glance, Kerber's characterization of the silence around this issue is correct. Oh, sure, ever so often somebody will say something. So James Otis, who's the brilliant political theorist and the brother of Mercy Otis Warren, wondered in a 1764 speech, he said, if all were reduced to a state of nature, another reference to Locke, had not apple women and orange girls, women who sell apples and oranges, didn't they as good a right to give their respectable suffrages for a new king as does the philosopher, courtier, and politician? Were these and tens of millions of such consulted? He actually said, are not women, women born as free as men? So somebody was talking about it. Now, sadly, um, he was shortly consigned to a mental asylum. So he had some problems. So it became easy to say, oh, look, at he was going crazy. He was talking about women being as free as men. But as it turns out, in the same way that we used to think the founders didn't know about slavery, they didn't know any better, the silence around the status of women wasn't exactly a vacuum. As a uh, colleague of mine put it, it wasn't one of those comfortable silences where nobody feels the need to speak. When it came to examining the nature of women and their role in a republic based on equality, this was one of those uncomfortable silences, punctuated by odd outbursts, with all the tension that marks the difference between simply not seeing and ignoring. And in the last few years, there's been a lot of work uh, done around breaking that post-revolutionary silence through a fresh look at the past. And I have to say, Linda Kerber uh, went back, and she's one of the great silence breakers. It is well known that in his reply to his letter, the Remembers the Ladies letter, John Adams basically made fun of his um, wife's request. He says to her, As to your extraordinary code of laws, I cannot but laugh. And traditionally, one of the ways to dismiss female concerns has been to playfully impute power far beyond that of mere men. Sadly, John Adams was guilty of that in that letter. In Mock Fear, he characterized women as a, quote, try more numerous and powerful than any other group of disenfranchised people. John Adams played his own variation on the old saw that the law gave women little power because nature gave him so much. 
Depend on it, he teased. We know better than to repeal our masculine systems. Although they are in full force, you know that they are a little more, they are little more than theory. We dare not exert our power in its full latitude. We are obliged to go fair and softly, and in practice, you know, we are the subjects. And what he's talking about is, of course, the putative sexual power that women have over men, uh, a power that he um, refers to as the despotism of the petticoat. And if you understand that a petticoat is worn in this area, you get that, right? But, of course, what's sort of more than ironic about that is that the law gave men almost absolute power over their wives' sexuality. But he could only cling to this little fantasy that women were so powerful that the only thing that men could cling to was the name of masters. But, so, so this would seem to contribute to the silence. Like, he just completely dismisses her and teases her. But the silence is broken a few months later when he writes another letter, 1776 letter, in which he shows that he understands the deep contradiction in the theories that the colonists were using to launch a, a revolution. Only a few months after this exchange, on the eve of declaring independence, he worried about the core of the issues Abigail had raised in a letter to James Sullivan, a formidable intellect in the Continental Congress. In his letter to Sullivan, John seesawed back and forth in a rhetorical dialogue as he tried to work out his thinking. So he's writing to Sullivan, but he's sort of arguing with himself, right? So he says, in theory, the only moral foundation of government is the consent of the people. Okay, but to what extent shall we carry this principle? Shall we say that every individual of the community, old and young, male and female, as well as rich and poor, must consent expressly to every act of legislation? No, you will say, this is impossible. How then does the right arise in the majority to govern the minority against their will? Whence arises the right of women, men, to govern women without their consent? So he writes this to Sullivan. And it's a very long, complicated uh, letter because John is trying to form a coherent argument. And I won't do a whole deep read of it, but suffice to say that at some points he seems to be arguing with himself and losing to himself. He says, but why exclude women? You will say because their delicacy renders them unfit for practice and experience in the great business of life and the hardy enterprises of war as well as the arduous cares of state. Besides, their attention is so much engaged with the necessary nurture of their children that nature has made them fittest for domestic cares. So he says, why not women? And he gives the reason. But, then he says, that reason could actually apply to most men, who, he describes, are wholly destitute of property and also too little acquainted with public affairs to form a right judgment and too dependent upon other men to have a will of their own. But John got too close to a line of logic that was too scary to follow. And he actually drops it. And the rest of the letter, he's focusing on whether white men of little or no property should vote. Somehow, by the end of this letter, he could class property-less men with women and children as fundamentally unfit for suffrage. In the end, in spite of his concern, John Adams throws in the towel. Women cannot be given political equality because they just can't. It took a lot to silence or befuddle the verbose John Adams, which should give testament to the thorniness of the woman problem and the contested nature of the seeming silence. People were thinking about it. After the revolution, the putative silence was broken by deafening crashes all through the new union as state courts dealt with the problem of loyalist properties. Okay, so... On the face, it's very simple. If a loyalist man, so somebody in America who's loyal to the crown, he uh, sees, you know, runs off, runs to England, um, the new state is allowed to seize his land and, as a punishment for treason. And, of course, not only would the man lose his land, but his heirs would lose it as well. But what if, as in several cases, the property in question came to the man through his wife? That is, his wife's father had entailed land to pass through his daughter to her children, circumventing the husband. Yes, in the cases that came before the court, the wives had fled the country with their husbands, but this was the question. Could that be interpreted as a political statement, a political action equal to a man's desertion? After all, lawyers for the plaintiffs argued, a good wife obeyed her husband and followed him. Such a woman... She might have been a patriot at heart, but her political affiliation or allegiance mattered not as women had little or no legal or political existence. 
a woman's primary obligation and allegiance was to her husband and not the state. So you see the heirs who, after the war, wanted the, the property that would have come to them through their mothers, were arguing that just because the wives deserted, it didn't mean anything. They were being good wives. They had to go. What that meant is that the states, who obviously wanted to keep the property, found themselves in the position of making the most amazing arguments, arguing that women could be citizens with a responsibility to the state, and that meant they were fully capable of treason. So in Martin versus Massachusetts, counsel for the state argued that when Anna Martin, the mother of the plaintiff, James Martin, chose to accompany her husband back to England, she was acting in a political capacity, thus abandoning her Massachusetts property. Now, in the end, these cases are decided in a variety of ways. And in the case of James Martin, he got his mother's property, which is undoubtedly what she would have wanted. But he was able to do so because the justices who decided his case proceeded from this conservative point of view. They basically said Anne Martin wasn't capable of making a political act. She was just following her husband. But as I said, cases went the other way, too. And moments like this demonstrate that the failure to ameliorate the degraded status of woman was not inevitable. It wasn't unimaginable that the men who were constructing a new nation could have also imagined new ideas of female citizenship. So, how did the women themselves react to the founders in action? Thanks to Rosemary Zagari, fairly new book, a couple years old, Revolution Backlash, we now know they spent the 1790s and 1780s and the early 19th century pushing boundaries and constructing political lives. They may have been excluded from official power, but these white women were just as eager as their menfolk to create a new world. Some women became what they called female politicians, using the word politician in the sense of one who is politically knowledgeable. In New Jersey, women began to vote. In salons and parlors, women of elite classes in cities such as Princeton, Princeton, New Jersey, New York, and Philadelphia began the process of translating political theory into reality and to build a ruling class of family. This process accelerated and took on an even more urgent political dimension in 1801 when Dolly Madison and her colleagues came to town determined to develop the federal city into a capital. And who knows how far they would have gone. But the coming of universal male suffrage in the 1820s and the new party system stopped the movement for female political equality in its tracks. Voting became the single defining political act rendering obsolete such traditional political techniques as demonstrating, boycotting, and petitioning, which both men and women did because for a long time many men couldn't vote. Women who had previously participated in politics out of doors could not vote and so found themselves shut out of the smoke-filled room. But women's omission, uh, exclusion rather, from politics was more than a sin of omission. Rather, the print media actively pushed women out of politics in order to contain and diffuse the increasingly bitter partisanship born out of the new democratic two-party system. In the face of enormous cultural opposition, the women's rights movement not only stalled, it went backward. And this backlash was so intense that in 1848, women such as Lucretia Mott and Elizabeth Cady Stanton, who we're going to meet in a couple weeks, were not starting a movement for suffrage on a kind of neutral ground. They had to overcome decades of resistance to what their culture called petticoat politicking. Now, I have to tell you, for years, I have taught this Remember the Ladies letter, and I, you know, because I'm a professional historian, enjoyed debunking the idea that Abigail Adams was talking about political equality for women, asking for something as radical as the vote. I presented her plea to mitigate coverture's hold on the lives of women as, correctly, as a more historically accurate, more modest, and reasonable request. And in that way, I was actually reflecting the 19th century attitude toward the vote as the most radical claim on the state that a citizen can make. So you'll see in 1848, when Elizabeth Cady Stanton is going to write the Declaration of Sentiments, she almost doesn't include the call for suffrage in her demands because she was going too far. But I was wrong. What Abigail Adams was asking for, for women to have a measure of control over their bodies, their lives, and their destinies, was far more radical and frightening than a call for suffrage. I think the founders would have been much more likely to let property women vote, as they had in New Jersey for a short time, than to dismantle the institution that ensured control over their wives. Marriage under coverture was an oppressive system, and I think we have a hard time understanding its scope and depth. 
you know, one of the great discussions in American history is how colonial America instituted slavery so quickly and how it became so all-encompassing, again, fairly quickly. After all, by the 1700s, colonial America had one of the most total systems of slavery in the world. It's lifelong, it was immutable, and it was inheritable. And there are theories to how this happened, but the study of gendered systems such as marriage can supply one important factor. In short, it was easy for colonial men to construct a system of almost total control over African bodies because they had a system in place already. It was marriage, and it proved a highly workable model for chattel slavery, even supplying slavery with a justification based in nature. So women are wives because they're women, and African Americans are slaves because they're African American. So marriage used the natural inferiority of women to rationalize female subordination in the same way that the institution of slavery would develop a race-based biology that concretized the new system. Now, to take the title of a recent book, this certainly could be seen as a profound failure of the founders. But we share in that failure. For instance, the United States has never abolished coverture, as anyone who's tried to change his name to his wife's, uh, or has tried to buy uh, property in one of the original 13 colonies. Elements of coverture have been abolished gradually. Marital rape, for instance, became a crime in the 1980s. But it has seemed too radical, too extreme, to simply declare that women are equal under the law. In the same way that we haven't passed an equal rights amendment preferring to pick out way at particular elements of female oppression rather than just declaring a blanket equality. I would suggest to you that we study the founders' fear around the issue of female equality and their decision to do nothing to alleviate the degraded status of half of the population, not in order to judge them, not to point out their limitations, but to understand ours. Okay. Questions, my dears. Questions and thoughts. Yes. When you say that coverture hasn't been abolished, like what kind of um, things are still under coverture that we experience today? Yeah. Yeah, coverture hasn't been abolished, as I said. Um, when we needed to abolish slavery, um, we did it by constitutional amendment. We did it by three, by the way, constitutional amendments. And what happened is that coverture got picked away under a variety of things. So there's a whole raft of legislation about uh, uh, employment, the Civil Rights Act. There's a little bit of protection here and there. But all this law can go away with a, a vote in Congress. So it's, and it's all very piecemeal. So as I said, you know, women didn't serve on juries until the 1960s, marital rape, the 1980s. Uh, recently, a man tried to change his names to his wife's when he got married, and he had to sue in court to do that. Um, if you buy property in certain... Well, I'll tell you. It's, is it time for an inappropriate personal story? Yes. Yeah, I think so. Yeah. So, um, and by the way, I, I'm collecting coverture stories in real life, so when you go home for Thanksgiving, get some for me. So um, my husband and I went to uh, apply for a mortgage on a house. I don't want anyone to get the wrong idea, but I am greater in every way than my husband. <laughs> Meaning I am older, I have been working longer, I've been working at the same job longer, I've been working longer in our field, I have a higher position, I make more money, my name starts with A, I'm taller. Okay, I'm in every way greater than my husband. But when he went to sit down, he was the borrower and I was the co-borrower. And, you know, we're eager to get the mortgage. And my husband's like, well, why don't you make her the borrower? She's the one with the money. And she's like, and this was like very old, not old, old, but, you know, uh, she said, honey, it's a man's world. She said, he's got to be first because he's the guy. And she goes, I could put you first, but then the lawyers will just fuss at me and change it. Now, you know, we're fine. You know, not horrible. But, yes, just these things that are still you know, in our culture. Here's my favorite coverture in real life story, too, as well. So this woman... Um, Often it's hard because coverture and law presumes women are wives. We've talked about that. So what happens when you're not a wife or a widow uh, and you're a single woman? Sometimes you can't borrow money or get a mortgage on a house. And this is the case about 10 years ago with a woman who couldn't get a mortgage on a house. She was single. She had a good job, but she couldn't get a mortgage. The joke is her job was she was a loan officer for a bank. You know. And again, these are little sorts of things. But you know, if we just had an equal rights amendment, all of this would be gone. You may remember the Lilly Ledbetter law. It was one of the first things that President Obama uh, signed into law. And it was an employment discrimination case. 
And in the end, justice was done. It's a happy ending. You can look it up. But this woman had been horribly discriminated in the workplace, and she had to fight all the way to the Supreme Court, and the Supreme Court just made an asinine ruling that President Obama had to overturn. And, you know, in the end, yay! But, like, why? Why are we fighting all these? Why don't we just pass? But we're very uneasy about it. Very uneasy about it. You got me on my bugaboo, my soapbox. Good for you. (laughs) Questions? Anybody have a coverture story for me? Well, let's take a look at something um, <clears throat> that I want to show you. It's our image of the day. Here we go. Hello, image of the day. Mm, there we go. Lovely. Now, we talked about the boycotts um, that women um, undertook. Lovely. Even lovelier. Thank you. When technology works, it's like a little gift from heaven, isn't it? <laughs> And um, so the you know word came out as I said in the newspaper of the boycotts, and this was a cartoon drawn in a, for a British press, and it was um, spoofing one of these groups of ladies, the ladies of Edenton, North Carolina. These were real women, the, and they had signed a, a, a basically a boycott, promising not to buy stuff. Right. So the satirist, uh, the cartoonist, took that subject and created this lovely little cartoon here. With the idea, of course, that it would be shown in British papers and also that men on both sides of the Atlantic, right, would be seeing this cartoon. Now, I love using cartoons for this. As I said, I think humor and the jokes that people have are just very indicative of their culture. But let me, as we look at this, let me ask you for the question, too. Why a cartoon? What does a cartoon do that, say, a written piece wouldn't do? Yes, Ms. Mack. It's accessible. It, uh, you don't need to be able to read. You don't need to be literate to understand it fully. It's satirical in a way that somebody at a glance would capture their interest and have them keep that image. Yeah, so really two things. You don't have to read or write to see this. And it's done in such a way that you, you kind of get it right away. Right, exactly, exactly. Yeah, and I think, too, because this is, oh, this is a very literate uh, age as far as there's pamphlets being produced in newspapers and there's lots of, you know, rights to Tom Paine and, you know, all this kind of stuff. But the cartoon is, as you point out, accessible, but it also plays on the emotions, too, right? Because you could be stirred by, uh, you know, Thomas Paine, but you also could look at this. So when you look at a cartoon... And, and feel something right away. When you look at a cartoon, it's important to also sort of focus on the emotion. What emotion are they kind of going for? So uh, let's take a moment and co- just kind of point out some aspects of this cartoon. What's going on in here? What is going on? The ladies have gathered, possibly signing the boycott. Yes, yes, this is supposed to be a depiction. So we have the desk. We have the boycott letter there. Uh, and there's a central figure, right? She's writing, and then there's all these people around. What else is going on in this picture? There's a child present. There is a child, right down at the bottom there. Well, he's, just, he's there, he has to be there, because they're women, they're moms. They yeah. can't just you know, do this without worrying about their kids. They have to, and the dogs are too. Yeah. Yes, yes. It seems that even in the midst of signing, like you can see that the women are doing more traditional things, like the spinning all the way in the back uh-huh. on the left corner. Uh-huh. And then you yeah. can also see an African-American slave on the right-hand corner. Okay, all right, yes. Um, I think probably the dog is male because he's peeing on whatever the women are doing. Mm-hmm. They love the peeing dog thing, yes. <laughs> um, it's still showing that the man's kind of dominating the woman, even yeah. though they're sitting in front of this and about to sign it, but he's still kind of like on top of her. Uh-huh. Let's talk about the man for a second. Yes, did you want to say something, John? Well, I was going to say there's uh, the kid there, but nobody's paying attention yeah. to the kid. They're yes. kind of neglecting it. Yes, yes, and I think that when, it, when it's being licked by a peeing dog, that's a good sign. <laughs> neglect. Yes, yes. But let's talk about this man for a second, right? So we have all these women, and um, we'll talk a little bit about who those women are, but let's take a look at the man. Um, what, is, what kind of sort of figure does he represent? Would you say a simple, humble farmer? Yeah. No. no, 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 no. The parliament and the white wig and like he's seducing the women. He's like a Casanova. <laughs> he's a Casanova, right, right. And look at this, look at the, the woman that he's sort of uh, leering at or whatever he's doing there. Uh, how is she dressed? A nice North Carolina housewife? Lovely. Yes, a courtier, right. So we now have like, hmm. So we have this woman in the center. Maybe she's getting a little above herself. Right? Maybe she's buying those luxuries that she can't afford. She's putting on this air. And now we have this guy. And this guy seems like a, maybe a French guy or an English guy or a courtier. 
And what's he doing? What could he be doing? Seducing. Wooing. Wooing is good. Wooing. (laughs) So old fashioned. (laughs) Wooing, yes, yes. He could be wooing her. He's definitely got his eyes somewhere. Uh, What else could he be doing, though? He can like lure her from signing the yeah. from signing yeah. the, the boycott. Oh. Yeah. You like? Yeah, I like that. He yeah, could she, be. She has a pen in her hand, but she's not making uh, paper. Yeah, it's not touching. Maybe. And she's not paying attention. She's not like having her eyes in the paper. She's right. looking at the courtier. So it's kind of like that. His his wooing is kind of distracting her. Mm. And it's starting. You know, women easily he's distracted. Love to shop for shoes. They're easily distracted. <laughs> right. So what if this guy who looks kind of foppish, but what if he had serious plans? Who could he count on to follow his? Why the women, of course. <laughs> right. So I mean, on one hand, he could be. It could just be you know, some guy wanting to have sex with our wives. But it also could be the sort of, you know, hmm, women are so easily manipulated and led that if they had any political power or action, they would be the creatures of any designing man. Because it certainly seems to be working. Okay, so we see this gathering of women. We see this sort of suspicious man. We also see that the central figure, as I said, is dressed in this rather extravagant, sort of foolish way. Um, What else about the other women in this group. And somebody mentioned the African-American presence. In fact, it's a little hard to see, but she's actually holding the pen and inkstand there. Um, what can we say about these women? Yes? They are less than attractive, most of them, other than the focal point. I mean, the one with the hair and holding a gavel, she's quite hideous. And <laughs> the one further to mm-hmm. her right is um, they're not the ideal beauty for any time period. They're not looking good. No. No, you don't have to justify. I'll go with that. Yes. You yeah. can also see that the fa- by the fact that no one's paying attention to the child, that the person who made this picture is satirizing the women to be neglectful over the children? Yes. Oh, yeah, we already know, right, these aren't good moms. We know that, right, because, exactly, there's children, you know, everywhere and dogs running wild. So there's a sense here (laughs) of disorder, right? And these women, in addition to their lack of sartor, you know, how are they dressed as far as class-wise? If we assume that the woman in the middle is upper class in North Carolina, which means she can afford that fancy outfit, who are these other women? Yeah, they're kind of they're kind of ordinary low class women. Um, yeah, in fact, I don't know if you could say there's they're drinking a punch bowl. There's a punch bowl in there. They're drinking a little bit. There's I think a pipe. So now we have a kind of more of a class chaos, right? And who that of course is the most sinister figure here? And it's the African American woman. So, hmm. if this cartoon is a warning to American men that if they let their women meddle in politics, what's going to happen? The household's going to fall apart. Debauchery. Well, I love debauchery. I'll take that. Yes, but the household's going to fall apart, right? Chaos. Mm -hmm. And not just fun chaos, not the good kind. (laughs) Class, right? Race, right? We can't have that. There's going to be disorder everywhere. Uh, And, of course, they'll be neglecting their duties. It's like as if a revolution would be coming. I'm sorry? And it would be like as if a revolution would be coming. And instead of the men making the revolution, it's kind of like saying, warning, it's like the women are going to make the revolution. Yes, yes, yeah. They wouldn't be good Republican wives. They wouldn't wouldn't rear good Republican sons. No, 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 absolutely. Yes, but you're right. It's sort of like, okay, men, you go down this road. This This might be your house. Now... Remember, I said cartoons are about emotion, right? And the, as emotionally um, upsetting as the dog and the kid might be, what are some of the sort of deeper warning messages, again, with this idea like you can't take this too far and this is what you're going to end up with? And just let me just, it's almost always about sex. Just throw that out there. What's one of the sexual threats of this? Yeah. Just the fact that even if they're trying to do something as radical as trying to boycott tea, just by the way that the man is portrayed, it's kind of like you can try to stop it by sexually um, seducing them so that they can forget about it. Sex is a political weapon. Yeah. Uh, there is only 
one child in the photo, and there are many women. So there are some uh, men that aren't getting sex to create children. <laughs> and, and by the way, where are those children anyway? Yeah. <laughs> no, I mean, certainly at one level, and this is always a very popular, uh, they're, they're going to come out of sex with our women. You can almost always find a crisis of masculinity there, right? So they're, they're going to, because who is this guy? And you start letting your women be political, they're going to be open to men in a certain kind of way. And men are going to be interested in them. They're always interested in them for sex, but now they're going to be interested in them as political creatures. Sex will become a political weapon. They're going to sleep with our wives. That's always, always good. But I'd like you to focus on what has been uncharitably called hideous, uh, the woman right here. What's going with the gavel? And so she's really, if you think about who's the most active person in this, of course, it's the woman in the fancy dress, that's the center, but she's the one holding the gavel, she's right there at the table, so she's deep in the thick of this. Tell me about this figure. Politics will make your women ugly. <laughs> Politics will make your women ugly. Hmm. And civil power, since she has yes, the gavel. Yes, she has the gavel, right? Power and politics. I'm going to suggest it goes a little farther than that. She almost looks identical to the... Younger woman being seduced, like wearing the exact same clothing. Oh, I know. Facial features almost, but a little bit uglier. Mm -hmm. Oh, that's interesting. Yeah, she's in the same kind of clothes, so it's almost like you'd see this is what's going to happen. Yes, if you keep going, even that good-looking woman is going to turn into Mm -hmm. what? But I would say it's more than ugly. What does she look like? She looks like a monarch. A monarch? Like with her gavel, and then she's wearing like, not like a cape. Like yes, she looks like a monarch, but somebody said it. She looks like a man. She looks like a man. She looks like a man. She's not just incredibly sort of not pretty. Uh, she actually looks like a man, and I think they think of a monarch, you know, yeah, she has a sort of magisterial kind of quality. This is the threat. The threat is you will become unmanned. If you let your women be political to get power, the world will turn upside down. That's one of their favorite phrases, right? And in this inversion of the world, who's going to be the men? The women are going to be the men. And this is a theme that will resound through American history. And it's one of the things that's really going to hold up the call for the vote because they can't imagine, the culture can't imagine, how a woman could vote and not turn into a man. Thoughts? Yes. Well, this theme is continued to today, unfortunately. They often say that um, outspoken, outspoken um, feminists are, you know, oh, it's just so the ugly girls get a chance to stand up. I mean, that's said today at I know, I know. That locker room, so, the locker room yeah. thing, you know what I'm talking about, right? Yeah. Yeah, yeah people are like, reporter. because the, the beautiful reporter apparently didn't complain, but yeah. somebody, they're like, oh, she's probably an ugly girl. I'm like, really? Yeah. Oh my God! Yes. Yeah. Just going back to your statement, I was going to say that it's something still today, even with politicians. Like, if you compare it to, I don't know, like how Hillary Clinton mm-hmm. during her campaign mm-hmm. in two thousand and eight, and how she was criticized because she was saying, "Oh no, she's going to have too much power," and a lot of it was was on her looks. Yeah. Which I thought was okay and fortunate, which is kind of ironic because when they were talking to Sarah Palin, and and she was running with McCain for vice president. Then it was kind of like they were praising her and yet saying that she was beautiful and to think, huh, you know, why would you allow to be really critical and yet dominical to one person but yet be really... Oh, no, well, no, it's, no it's, you're, you're, you're struggling with this, this tension, right, which is yeah. a powerful woman. If, if our, our um, I guess our version of political power, our vision, rather, our image is of a male... And it, it would be easy to, to say, okay, for women, you should then go be like men. That would be easy. So the 1970s people, we wore all those floppy bows and, you know, okay. But that doesn't work either because if you are too mannish, like this one here, you get in trouble. Okay, well then, okay, let's just do this. Just be totally feminine. Uh, wear dresses and whatever. Da, da, da. Well, no, you're going to get in trouble then because you're not going to be taken seriously. So you're right. When we had Hillary Clinton running for office and we had Sarah Palin we, had, we saw both those discourses working to their disadvantage. So if you wanted to discount Sarah Palin, you could be like the beauty queen. You know, you, can, you could say, yeah, she, they only picked her because she's pretty. You know, at the same time, people would, if you wanted to turn against Hillary Clinton, you could criticize her for being not young and gorgeous and all that sort of stuff. And so it's, that's very much a theme in American politics is a concentration on the body, especially the body of women. Um, and this happens from my period on. So the bodies of men are important in, this, in that 
size matters. They like politicians to be big and sort of powerful. And women's bodies become this very contested space as well. But the fear of being unmanned, which you may remember we talked about, uh, was very deeply threatening when the English saw the Native Americans and saw the changing gender roles. Their fear was that they would somehow slide into this and lose um, their masculinity. It is a theme that we're going to see over and over again. My dears, thank you so much. We are out of time. Yes. Um, Have a great day. Thank you very much. Thanks for listening to C-SPAN's Lectures in History. Be sure to check out our Q&A podcast for intriguing hour-long conversations with people who are making things happen. On this Sunday's episode, journalist and historian Craig Fairman analyzes American presidents through the lens of the books they've written. Mr. Fairman is one of the historians who participated in C-SPAN's Presidential Historian Survey 2021. Find it and follow wherever you get your podcasts. Thank you.